0: Let's bow together in prayer. Father, as we have celebrated you today, we have been reminded of your power, we've been reminded of your grace, your mercy, that you're strong enough, Lord, to help us when we're weak. And we admit, Lord, that we are not capable in ourselves to do what we want to do and need to do. We thank you that there is the Holy Spirit has been given to your people who empowers us, who illumines us, who quickens us, and also, Lord, he guides us. And so we pray that you would guide us in the truth. Help us today as we look into this portion of your word, that we would take something that was written many, many centuries ago, and we would see and understand its relevance and significance about Christ and about us and about those who are in authority, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sure all of us are aware of the story of Joseph and Mary. Their home was Nazareth in Galilee, and yet it, their firstborn Jesus was born where, 80 miles to the south, which is about a four-day journey, in Bethlehem. And what was the reason for all this inconvenient relocation under the umbrella of the providence of God? Well, we find the answers in Luke chapter 2 where we read these words. It came about in those days, the days when Mary was expecting that child, that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the inhabited earth. All were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. Prior to this time, the citizens of Palestine, that is, would include Galilee and Jerusalem as well in the south, they had been exempt from the Roman census. But the Roman authorities decided to count everyone so that the poll taxes could be levied against everybody. In that area, all the residents of Palestine. And so the Jews of the first century viewed this development as a symbol of further Roman oppression. Here they are now, must go and be counted so that they can now have the poll tax and levy taxes against all of the Jewish people there. See, in the thinking of the Roman emperor, Augustus, collecting taxes from all these people who lived in the empire especially the Jews in Israel, that made sense, monetary sense. He, as the emperor, knew that it took large sums of money to pay the salaries of all of his Roman soldiers who are keeping the peace, the Pax Romana. And it was the tons of money they needed to help keep those roads paved, the imperial roads, which made travel so much more easy and accessible. It was a good large sums of money to construct all of these well-engineered aqueducts that transported water over all these great distances so that there would always be plentiful amounts of drinking water. Even though they benefited from all the protection from invading armies and had the paved roads and abundance of drinking water, there were, in the first century Jews, there was tremendous resentment on their part to the Roman authorities intruding into their land and, more specifically, intruding into their pocketbooks, in their pockets. Now starting to take and require this poll tax from them. And this resentment now provides us with the backdrop of the text we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 22. Because we have in this text, surrounding it, it is in the context of a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Pharisees being one of the groups of Jewish leaders religious leaders at the time of Christ. Years earlier, you need to understand, years earlier before this event, and probably happening around 30 AD, 25 years earlier, nationalistic, anti-Roman sentiment fueled the flames of an uprising in which there was an attempt to throw off Roman rule, and there was a violent clash, and it's the thing to which Gamaliel referred in Acts chapter 5. If you want to read more of the background, he gives indication that there was a violent attempt to try to throw off Rome. And so that's the strong level to which uh, hatred and dislike of this Roman oppression. And now it's gotten worse because now they're paying this poll tax. So there's tension with govern, governing over by Rome, but there's also tension over the religious authority because Jesus has already exposed them in the previous text in chapter 22 in which he had cleansed the temple, and he rebuked those leaders who were responsible for the temple because they were charging excessive prices to the thousands of pilgrims who gathered for the Passover. And so the response of the Pharisees in verse 23 of chapter 21 was they were determined to challenge Jesus' authority. Who does this guy think he is coming in telling us what we're doing wrong? And so Jesus responded in chapters 21 and 22 of Matthew with three parables that he had responded to them, and pronounced essentially judgment on them because they have rejected Him as Messiah. So that now brings us now to verses 15 to 22 of Matthew 22, where we have a fascinating study on the issue of what I'm suggesting is the theme here in this particular passage is authority. Follow with me now as we read these verses. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap Jesus in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus... "...perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax." And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, They marveled, and leaving him, they went away. Now I would argue again, if you want to get a helpful background as to why I'm going in this direction of authority in this particular text, is because if you also look at Luke's account of this, in chapter 20, verse 20, Luke talks about the fact that the Pharisees wanted to deliver Jesus to the rule and authority of the governor. There is a big battle going on over here about authority, and that to me seems like it plays out very clearly in this text. So the first point I'd like to suggest is that there was a misuse of religious authority clearly portrayed in this text, a misuse of religious authority. One of the overarching themes of chapters 21, 22, and 23 of Matthew's gospel is the lack of integrity among the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus's day. And I want us to look at several examples of how that clearly is portrayed in this text. Uh, Very quickly, I'm just going to touch on them as we move through and look at what we understand was really like now. What were the characteristics of the Jewish leaders, particularly the Pharisees? Notice, first of all, their motives. Their motives. Rather than heeding the loving and earnest warnings that Jesus had already given them in these three parables, He had patiently help them to understand and paint pictures so that he would compellingly warn them about what's yet to come because of their rejection. They refused to heed any of those things and they plotted a way to trap Jesus. And the word here used in verse 15, you'll notice, is the word ensnare, translated ensnare. And it was used literally of a trap that you would use to trap a bird. If you were trying to catch a bird uh, for whatever reason, And that's what they're trying to do is set a trap for Jesus. They asked Jesus a question, not so they could really learn from his wisdom, not to plumb all of his insights that he brought to any situation, any kind of problem, but to create a situation where Jesus would discredit himself, where he would somehow uh, so incriminate himself by what he said that it would destroy him and it would also, by destroying him, preserve their authority and their popularity among the people of the day. And so they're hoping that Jesus would incriminate himself and thereby undermine his popular support that was seemingly was increasing at this point third year into his public ministry. So their motive was clearly to destroy him. B their strategy. Notice how these religious leaders as we learned earlier in John 12 they loved the approval of other people. Oh, they just loved to hear the the applause, the acclaim, the, the kind of respect that people would approach them and give them approval rather than the approval of God. They really wanted the approval of other people. They were big into putting their finger, their wet finger up in the air, feeling which way the wind was blowing, and that's the way they would hold their positions. They did whatever they could to maintain popularity. Well, here they're choosing not to challenge Jesus directly. Notice now how they're doing this, their strategy. They're not going to walk right up to him and confront him. What are they going to do? They've actually recruited some of their Pharisees in training. They got the young, inexperienced guys who are not the actual ones with the formal position yet. They're still in training, the disciples of the Pharisees. So they bring these young guys up in there, and they're going to let them do their dirty work. They're going to to say one of these things in public. They're going to be the ones who are trying to set the trap on their behalf. So they're letting other people do their destructive work. So that why? They don't want to lose support of the crowds. They don't want to be seen as being people who have evil or devious motives. And notice another component of their strategy was, and this is amazing, they cooperated with the most unlikely group you would ever expect them to join forces with, and that is the group called the Herodians. Did you notice that in the text? The Herodians. You say, who are the Herodians? It's the only place in the New Testament that we hear of this title of a group of uh, within the Jewish leadership. The Rhodians were the opposites of the Pharisees. They were worlds apart as Jews. The Pharisees, on the one hand, were strong, nationalistic. Uh, they were strongly uh, supportive of Israel, and they very much resented Roman rule because, you remember, they were the separatists. They didn't want to be aligned with or have anything to do with uh, the Gentiles. And so they nonetheless, with that strong view, they joined forces with and made an alliance with the Herodians who supported the reign of Herod Antipas of Galilee. So here they support this guy, this political uh, appointee up in a uh, Roman appointee up there in, in Galilee, and they are saying we are hand in hand with this guy. We support what he's doing, and we want to win favor from him. So you've got people who are diametrically opposed to each other, they're joining forces for what purpose? So they can destroy Jesus. What pragmatists? The end, what they were looking for, the end, which was maintaining their popularity, justifies the means. The means was what? Cooperating with the Herodians. Otherwise, they would never get along with them and they'd never do anything with them. But they're willing to compromise their convictions in order to maintain their authority. What are they looking for? They're looking out for their own skin. They're using their authority to do whatever steps they can to preserve themselves. Well, look at their approach. Thirdly, in keeping with their hypocritical ways, the Pharisees' disciples, these guys in training, they come up to Jesus and they seek to entrap Him using what? Shameless flattery. Just pouring it on. I mean, it's just dripping with this kind of phoniness as they just find as many things as they can possibly think of to commend him and express their highest level of respect and honor for this teacher, this rabbi among them. And what's their goal? The goal is to destroy him, and yet we're going to sit here and praise him. The irony is is that they're applauding all of his truthfulness. They're applauding his his honesty. Meanwhile, what are they doing? They're the ones speaking lies. <laughs> Everything they're saying is is a big phony fraud for them about Jesus. And if they meant what they actually said, what would they have been doing? If they really meant what they said about Jesus' characteristics and his quality traits, they should have become Jesus' disciples. But they're committed to the exact opposite, to destroying him. And they've expressed approval for Jesus' refusal to court favor with anyone, which is the exact opposite of what they are all about. They're all about what? Winning the favor of the crowd no matter what. It's very interesting in the contrast between the two here being played out. Here they are with their long prayers that they prayed in public to impress everybody. Here they were as people who would draw attention to themselves when they're fasting. they are going to be people who are uh, sitting in the positions of honor when they're gathered someplace. That's what they're all about. And here they're drawing attention to Jesus in ways in which He didn't play to the crowd, and yet they say that with insincerity. And with lies, what hypocrites they are. And then third, uh, fourthly, notice, look at their determination. As an example of their misuse of religious authority, they refused to submit to the weight of evidence that they have already observed about Jesus and His legitimately, legitimate authority. And notice their response to Jesus' answer there in verse 22. Their response was to marvel, to be in awe of Jesus' wise and insightful words because they thought for sure that they had put him into a corner he was going to hang himself on those words. And they realized he's not going to be hung on those words. And they were just amazed at his response. And despite hearing wisdom that was greater than Solomon spoken to them, they refused to yield to that evidence. And look forward, if you will, to Luke 23, verse 2. Just take a second. A couple books over to the right there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 23, verse 2, and just days later, less than 48 hours from the time probably that this occurred, the incident we're reading about, Jesus' response gave them no grounds to accuse him of insurrection. And yet, three days, uh, two days later, they're standing before Pilate, and they uttered this Fabrication as they brought up trumped up charges for Jesus to get him into trouble to get rid of him. Verse 2 of Luke 23. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Nothing could be farther from the truth in this text. Jesus said, No such thing on this occasion. And so rather than being impressed with his wise answer, they did what? He spoke an answer that was incredibly amazing, and they twisted it and distorted his answer, misquoted him, and they're doing what? They're using his words against him to bring what? It's, it's it, To bring him to destruction. And it's no wonder then that Jesus, in chapter 23, which is where we're going next, spends a good deal of time issuing the words of judgment about the Pharisees Because they've misused their religious authority. They're only interested in themselves. They're out to destroy anybody that gets in their way to advance themselves. And they're willing to destroy even the Son of God, Jesus himself. May I remind you, my friend, that every religious authority isn't necessarily a religious authority that uses their authority in ways that honors God. Do I even need to say that? And I hope you understand that that's something that you should understand. Religious authority can easily be misused and is misused quite often. A uh, number of times in the New Testament, we have warnings about people who come presenting themselves as spiritual authorities, and yet their authority is corrupt authority, and what they're teaching is a corrupt message. So that we have in 2 Peter chapter 2, he spends a whole chapter warning the church there's coming There are coming those who are going to teach false teaching, and they themselves are people who are living in ways that are not in keeping with the truth. That warning ended up playing itself out very soon afterwards because you read the book of Jude, and the book of Jude is saying those people who are teaching false things and presenting themselves with this false authority and living lives that are not in keeping with the truth of Christ, they are here among us. They're already sowing their seeds. They're already expressing their... Uh, They're uh, using their influence and their authority in ways to destroy the truth and destroy and lead people into error. And so my point here, my friend, is to say, just because someone claims to speak on behalf of God and may look impressive with their credentials in order to say that does not necessarily mean that they have a proper use of authority in that particular realm. Pretty straightforward, but obviously true. In this particular situation, that having said that, I want to move now to our next observation about the text. I want us to look carefully here at the wise use of divine authority, the wise use of divine authority. clearly we're talking now about Jesus here and I would not I want you to read this text, and i don 't want you to overlook something very important here regarding the unmatched patience of Jesus displayed in this text as i 've thought about jesus interacting with these people who were out to destroy him i am just taken aback again as to how patiently he dealt with them Uh, possessing unlimited power jesus could have commanded the army of heaven to defend him and to leave him and to leave his opponents lying on the ground like dead people that could have been the scenario that played out here. Instead, he graciously demonstrated his supreme wisdom and supreme insight. Jesus was never intimidated by an authority figure. Did you hear that? Never was he intimidated by any human authority figure that he encountered. He came to do the will of his Father, and he yielded his absolute authority to the greater cause of treat, of teaching the truth of God, and bringing in the kingdom of God and ushering it in as he uh, initiated it there in his ministry. Rather than commanding these uh, uh, Pharisees to be silent, Jesus confounded their foolish thinking. He taught with authority in a way that his opponents were literally amazed. What patience in the face of people who were seeking to destroy him. He could easily have destroyed them. He had the authority to do such. And yet he yielded himself to the plan of the Father. Notice, secondly, that Jesus, in his wise use of divine authority, he wanted his opponents to know that it was impossible to blindside him. Did you catch that in the text? Here is Jesus. He's not swayed by any of their flattery. It doesn't mean a thing to him. It doesn't, it doesn't draw him off guard at all. He saw through their phony compliments, and he knew that what was in the hearts of people that he spoke with. John chapter 2 tells us that. Jesus had complete knowledge. He could read your thoughts. He could understand what was in their, their motives and their mind. And yet he never abused that knowledge. He could have used his extensive knowledge to embarrass them or to retaliate in ways that would have been self-serving. But in this incident, Jesus let his, let his enemies know that nobody supersedes his authority. He's aware of what's going on there. Nobody's pulling one over his eyes. He could never be captured or taken prisoner against his will. Jesus yielded and laid down his life. And these instances that occurred in the last several days of his public ministry, they indicate clearly that those around him who are misusing their authority, Jesus never misused his authority. They, yes, were successful in crucifying him and trying to physically uh, completely destroy him. But Jesus submitted to his authority of his father. For his purposes and he never he restrained his right to immediately enforce justice and to bring judgment upon those who defied him. And his authority this is very important Jesus' authority was a selfless authority. His authority was always expressed in ways that were in keeping with the purposes of his father, and it was not just about him defending himself but saying, I am here for a greater purpose. I'm here to accomplish God's will. You could absolutely trust Jesus Christ, my friend, if you've gotten burned by somebody who was in authority in your life, who abused their authority, and you say, I don't think I'll ever be able to trust and surrender and submit myself to someone with authority over me again. My friend, you've drawn the wrong conclusion because Jesus stands apart from anyone who's ever misused authority. He's never misused authority he is patient and he also is one in who he knows exactly what's going on in that situation and yet he did not bring about the wrong response or a response that is in keeping with you do evil to me i'll do evil back to you that was never something that jesus was drawn into therefore we can trust him we can surrender to him and watch where he goes with this text in the next section here the text highlights a contrast between the corruption of the religious authority and Jesus' is opposite of that, his wise use of his divine authority, but then, most, lastly, here, the limits of civil authority. The question was raised to Jesus is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So, what does Jesus do? Well, he stops what he's doing and he says, Okay, well, has anybody got, a, got one of those coins that we're supposed to use to pay our taxes with? So, somebody produces the coin. I have here. A Kennedy half dollar. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these floating around. They don't use them much anymore. Uh, Quite large compared to most of the coins we use. And it's got an outline, silhouette, a graving of John F. Kennedy on the one side. On the back side, it's got an eagle uh, with that symbol on there. And so we use the coin. We don't have a problem with the coin. It's not just something that we don't uh, have with us often, but nothing wrong with the coin itself. But that was not the case with the Jewish audience to whom Jesus is speaking. And I've got in your bulletin your notes, I hope you've got it open in front of you. I've given you the front side and the back side of an actual coin that has survived from that era. It is a Roman denarius. It's a silver coin. It was minted by the Roman Empire. And the inscription on that particular Roman coin, at this time when Jesus was speaking these words in approximately 30 AD, was the Roman emperor Tiberius. And so look at your notes and, I mean, talk about a rather uncomplimentary uh, image of this guy. Did you see the nose on this guy? Not to draw too much attention to that, but it just struck me as being, wow. That guy either was a boxer early in life or something or never got his nose. I don't know. Anyway, he can't help it, I guess. But uh, anyway, on the one side, you see an engraving profile of this uh, Tiberius Caesar, You see his head, and the inscription which reads, and I'll translate for you, it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Whoa. Son of the divine Augustus. What's that reminding us? It's reminding us of Caesar worship, of how the Roman emperors considered themselves gods and demanded everyone say what? We confess Caesar is Lord. They are divine gods among us. And this was the whole emperor worship, is all over this coin. That's what it represents. And for a Jew of that day to have anything to do with that was despicable. On the other side of the coin, you'll notice, there is seated on that in that coin Pax, P A X, the Roman goddess of peace, and in Latin inscription that said high priest. Ooh, even more offense a traditional uh, earnest Jew of that first century. And so the coin was offensive, offensive, offensive. And that's why the Jews minted their own coins. They would never want to handle these kind of coins and have these kind of of offensive uh, images that have idolatrous images on them, that kind of thing. They, therefore, Rome didn't want their money. Rome required the tax to be paid with these silver coins. That was the coin you had to use to pay your taxes. It had Tiberius's image inscribed on it. It was images in which they had coined their own money. It belonged to Caesar. By responding yes to the question, should we pay taxes, Jesus faced this dilemma that he would be siding with the Romans. And therefore, it would alienate him from the more conservative Jewish people, the nationalistic Jews, the zealots, all those people ready to fight and Throw off Rome. If Jesus said no, he would have sided with those who people uh, who were ready to throw the political powers off, and he had been accused by the Romans of being an insurrectionist. So here we go. What's his answer? Notice that his first insight is this. First, Jesus affirmed in verse. Uh, where are we? Verse twenty-one. He affirmed the authority of the state to tax its citizens. The verb he uses here in the word render, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, is not the word just give. It's not like, here, just give it to him. It's the word render, which means, it implies, to pay off a debt. It's an obligation, it is not something that is voluntary. This is an obligation. You must pay this. And those who've responded, you need to render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar, which means this particular tax. This coin is Caesar's. He's got his image on it. So give it to him. Those who have responded to the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's very clear Jesus is saying, even though you're in the kingdom of heaven, you still have the obligation to. To the authorities, the governor, civil governing authorities of this world, to pay taxes, even to idolatrous, cruel, morally corrupt government, it is still the duty and obligation of Christians to pay their taxes. Now, Paul reinforced that principle in Matthew thir- in Romans thirteen, which I can't go into too much detail here. But if you want to see a parallel of how the principle works out with Ro- uh, Paul's Instruction to the believers there in Rome, he says, Romans thirteen one, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse six, for because of this, the fact that they are called to be in subjection, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God. Um, devoting themselves to this very thing, that is, verse 4, he said, they were ministers of God for their good. Ministers of God is an avenger for those who practice evil. The the government is fulfilling a function that God wants government to do. And that we are to render, verse 7, to all what is due them, tax, to whom we are to render tax. That's not a very pleasant thought for those of us who live in a very high taxation area. But this is what is taught in terms of the obligation that we have regarding a government that we don't agree with 100% and certainly don't support on everything that the government does. But to refuse to pay taxes is to disobey God's command. If you want to look at another text that would similarly talk about the submissive component of submitting to authority is 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17. And to refuse to pay taxes, indeed, would seem to indicate that it's going contrary to what Jesus indicated in the text It Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar has the right to collect taxes. And so paying taxes to godless rulers is a God-honoring thing to do. Since we enjoy the benefits of government, the government that has funded, what, projects like roads that we drive on every day, it has funded a court system, it has funded law enforcement or other components that we have the advantage of their services to us, it's proper to pay taxes since God authorizes human government. Now, if that's all I said, we would not be saying enough. It's very important that you hear the next part, which is Jesus' real zinger at the end here. Well, both of them were zingers, actually, I think. Jesus went on to say, "...render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, having looked at the image of the coin." saying, whose image is this? What's he saying here? Jesus is saying there is a limitation to the authority of a civil government. The civil governments do not have absolute authority. And that which belongs to God is to be rendered to God. And Jesus is saying that his authority trumps the authority of Caesar, who claims to be Lord. Jesus is making a bold statement that says, listen, every single one of us Every single one of us here today is made in the image of God. Caesar can have all the coins he wants in the world minted with the image of his crazy nose and the outline of his face on those coins, and that's the coins he'll expect of you. But he says, listen this. I'll trump one bigger than that. Every person who's alive is actually ones who are owned by God. They belong to God. They are made in the image of God. And therefore, he says, you should render yourself unto God, serving him ultimately. Because His authority is the supreme authority. And that's what Jesus is trying to emphasize here. He's saying, my authority is higher than the authority than the local uh, human government that says, I am God, I am Lord, I have absolute power over all these nations and all you people under my realm. And Jesus is saying, "Mm -mm, the ultimate authority is God. And so therefore we should give ourselves to Him. Everything we have ultimately belongs to God. Our, we ourselves belong to God. And so anytime... Let me back up and just catch you in your notes here. That which belongs to God is to be rendered to God, and Jesus' authority is the ultimate authority. That was my point there. His authority is the ultimate authority. And any time a human government overextends its God-given authority and demands its citizens to worship its rulers, let's say, or demands its, its citizens to follow the constraints of a particular godless religion or religion that is uh, offensive to the whole uh, person of Christ and teaches a false system of salvation, as many Arab states require and almost uh, force all of their citizens of their nation to worship a certain way, then in a sense what Jesus is saying is that authority at that moment has superseded its God-given authority and therefore... That authority is not to be followed. A believer must obey God, even if it means disobedience to human rulers. Allegiance to God takes precedence over allegiance to Caesar, particularly when Caesar attempts to usurp the authority of God. And Acts 4 and Acts 5 give examples of that if you want to see that played out. God made us as his image bearers. We are the image bearers of God. And he has a claim on all that we have and all that we are. And sometimes I think we lose sight of that. When we think of ourselves emphasizing so much our freedom in the land in which we live, freedom is such a great thing. But, my friends, we are, the, who we are, and all that we have, and everything we accomplish is due to God. And so, Jesus, I think, is giving a very impressive broadening of the understanding of how extensive his authority really is. So, I'd like to ask the question then. If you and, and myself, if we all created the image of God, then have you surrendered your financial life to God? Have you surrendered your social life to God? What you say and what you do and what you convey, how you convey yourself on Facebook, is that submitted to God and His authority? Is your family life submitted to God? And the dynamic of how you interact there and what you're seeking to do as a family. Is your work and employment life? Submit it to God, saying, well, Lord, I work for you. You're my ultimate one of accountability here, not just my boss. I'm not going to goof off until the boss walks in and then all of a sudden think I'm going to have a different work ethic. God, you're the one I'm working for here. Uh, maybe your academic life. Do you follow and uh, the, the, the standards that are in keeping with honoring Christ in what you, or do you find yourself compromising and, uh, and being lazy, not doing your work, and cheating and whatever else to try to advance yourself academically. Your recreation life, your sex life, whatever it is. If we are people who are created in the image of God, and we are, then we ought to render ourselves to God. It makes absolute sense. And yet, how do we live our life most often? I'll give the tax to the governor to the, to the government, and then I'm going to take the rest of my money. I'll do what I want to because it's my life don't tell me what to do and many people find themselves slipping into realizing that they want to have authority over what they do with their things their time their life and all the things and the christian faith is just the opposite everything is about christ who ultimately has all authority and to submit to him as king is what makes logical sense because he's never ever abused his authority never he never will let's pray Father, I pray that you would help us the next time we receive change from a purchase we make and we have coins in our hands. I pray, Lord, that you would bring these truths back to mind. That when we see an image of some famous person in our country here emblazoned and carved into that, molded into that coin, I pray, Lord, it would draw to our awareness and remind us once again that we are created in your image. We are not just higher forms of lower levels of life that have somehow randomly found ourselves advancing. Lord, we bear your image. And therefore, what we are is owed to you. Everything. All that we have. All that we accomplish. All that we're pursuing. It's all about rendering them unto you we are obligated lord to do that because you've made us for yourself so father i pray that you would help us to have radically different ways of thinking about what we do with our lives our time our our uh, employment our families our finances our private relationships lord of things where our, our entertainment what we do with our free time lord all these things I pray that you would help us to see them through the lens of what it means to be a Christ follower, and that we would recognize Christ's ultimate authority, and that we would lovingly, willingly, and joyfully surrender and submit to Him, the one who never abused His authority, had absolute power, but He never once crushed a reed. He never once put out a, the, the, uh, the smoldering... Uh, um, uh, that which is almost about ready to go out. Lord, we thank you for his grace, his patience, his love. We thank you that he came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, help us, we pray, to live for him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.